Welcome to Scores and Pours, the podcast where you learn about wine and classical music. Hosted by sommelier Jill Mott and radio host Emily Reese. In this episode, Jill and Emily talk about what makes something good. Jill, blind tastes a wine, talks about its characteristics and makes some determinations about where it's from. Emily compares three different recordings of the same piece of music, Igor Stravinsky's The Rite of Spring, one of which was recorded by the composer himself. Check out patreon.com slash scores and pours for a full playlist and a wine list, and consider supporting the musicians you hear by buying their music. Hi, Joe Mott. Hello, Emily Reese. It's another beautiful day in the Twin Cities. We know how to pick them. We do know how to pick them, and (laughs) we especially know how to pick a topic that at the beginning of this foray into the podcast we had not discussed doing, but I think it's going to make for a goodie. What is it? Uh, <laughs> I know my part. I'm not quite sure how well, it fits into the grand scheme. I, f- I feel like uh, what we talked about, I asked you, mm-hmm. what makes a good recording? Because every time we do a podcast and you select yeah. you know, a, a certain composition you think I should listen to, you say, oh, and be sure to listen to this recording. Mm-hmm. And I say to myself, well, is it because of how it was recorded? Is it the conductor? Is it, you know, the you know, where things are placed? Is it Mm -hmm. live? Is it not? And I think there are similar questions when people say, what makes a good wine? There are many different questions that can be asked that are subjective, some that aren't subjective, some, you know, I'm paid to be able to talk about it. But in the end, we'll find out sometimes that matters and sometimes it doesn't. So so shall we? Yeah, so... um Firstly, uh, to answer the the question about a recording and what makes a good one, well, more specifically, the reasons I choose specific recordings are all of those reasons that you mentioned. Sometimes it's because it seems to me, or even maybe even the general public, that this is a highly regarded recording that, you know, if if you're going to really get into this particular piece this is a really famous recording of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's also ones that are, you know, perhaps more historically correct, like, or informed as best they can to be historically correct, as we have, and I'm sure we'll talk about in the future on scores and pours. Uh, And then there's, you know, maybe it's the soloist, like, um, you know, if I talk about a violin concerto or I talk about a, you know, uh, string quartet, maybe it's the performers that I'm really interested in themselves. Okay. You know, so there are a lot of reasons. But today, we're gonna listen to um, some really cool examples of a uh, 20th century piece called the Rite of Spring because the composer was alive in the recorded music era. So it's kind of fun to like go through and listen to different recordings to compare them. Uh, based off of some of the earliest recordings ever made of classical music. And I loved listening to how how different they were. Like they were yeah. they were so incredibly different, even though it's the same piece. With wine, you know, I, I'm gonna talk about the different ways in which, you know, when you're tasting wine, you're, are you tasting it for yourself? Are you tasting it? Are you judging it? Are you is it to be able to recommend it later? And then We'll kind of we'll we'll trot around various topics. I feel like it would be 
it would be easiest and most fun if we tasted a wine blind because I can say what I think makes a, a good wine and I try to come to that with a subjective, you know, it never is a wholeheartedly subjective, but yeah. I'm trying to think as least about do I like it or not as possible and most about what is this wine for? Is it for food? Is it for balance? Is it for pr just price? Is it for typicity? Meaning, like, if it says Chardonnay and it's from Burgundy, does it taste like that mm -hmm. or not? Um, and so, um, and I'll go into those in, in a bit, but I thought it would be, you know, if I brought something I liked yeah. or that I thought was typical, then that's not fair, right? Or, yeah. or So I thought it would be most fun. Um, thank you to Gretchen of Henry and Son for uh, putting something in the fridge, putting it in a brown bag, taking off the foil, and getting it all set. So it really looks all like we could go sit on the corner and beg for money with the way she bagged this up. It's, it's hilarious. It's perfect. It's, it's perfect. Wonderful. <laughs> so we're gonna taste it first in like a dark mug, so we mm -hmm. can't even see color. Emily's gonna do the honors opening it up because it doesn't matter if I see. I mean, seriously, there's no way in hell I'm gonna be able to taste it and be like. Mmm, this tastes like it's 20% Verdello and 20% Chardonnay. And, you know, well, like, you can do that. Well, more than anything, too, like, I, I could try to open it up and not see the cork. But if I happen yeah, no, to glance see, at the cork. I think I got to so do it. You got to yeah, do it. So do it. get that going. We're going to put it in a dark cup okay. first. At just so no we... point do you look. No. You do not open your eyes. That is true. <laughs> um, but for the record, we're going to put just a little bit in, like, a dark mug. So that we can, I mean, we'll probably yeah. be able to tell if it's a red or white or something. But just oh. to not influence um, as at least as we can. And then after that, we'll put it into some stemware. Okay, I'm going to try not to look at the cork. So not that it matters much to And like me. put it in your pocket or something, you know. Okay, so I'm going to pour some of this. I'm not going to look at it either. That sounds like enough. That sounds like way enough. Okay, fill up the mug, ER. Is this bonfire time? Come on. It isn't a paper bag. I feel like it's more appropriate. Okay, so, so the cork out what? of the way? Yeah, it's in my pocket. Okay. I haven't looked at anything. I have no idea what anything is. Okay, so I'm not going to look in the cup. No. But we'll just take a little taste, and then we'll go on about our podcast, yeah? Yeah. Well, it tastes to me like it tastes like it's got some oak. And it tastes like it could be an amber wine of some sort or a white white slash amber wine just because of how the oak is used, but maybe not, not necessarily. Um, there's not enough tannin maybe for it to be a orange wine, you know, mm, like I would expect something a bit more tannic. Because it stays on the skins for a while to get yep. the color. Yeah. Yes. ER, just helping, yes. helping, you know. Yes. Um, so thank you. Uh, so that's, I guess, as far as let's not... Let's not beat the mug horse. But that's kind of initial impressions, right? Like when you taste okay. something and you can't see the color, there's – you'd think right away it's easy to tell if it's a red or a white or what it is, but um, – or rosé even. I mean, this could be this could be an oaked rosé, actually. You could probably open your eyes too, truly, yeah. <laughs> it's just fun to sit and taste it like yeah, that yeah. in my – Okay, so you've chosen an amazing composition from an amazing – composer. Yeah. Why did you choose these three specific mm -hmm. recordings? I chose three recordings of The Rite of Spring by Igor Stravinsky. 
because Stravinsky was alive through a lot of the 20th century and made recordings of it. Uh, the person that conducted the premiere in Paris in 1913 made recordings of it. And uh, plus there's just one really famous one that kicks some ass. <laughs> so <laughs> yes. that's pretty much why. So we've got the guy who worked with Stravinsky uh, made the very first commercial recording. That dude's name was Monteau. Then we're going to hear from Leonard Bernstein, who made a recording in 1958 that's amazing. Then we're going to hear from Stravinsky himself, which he, again, he conducted it several times, but this one of him doing that with the Columbia Symphony Orchestra is pretty cool, and that one's from 1960. Great, and I loved how last night when we listened to them, and I've been listening to them on my own, mm -hmm. not only are they, of course, like radically different, even though they're the same tune, as sometimes yeah. you like to say, <laughs> but um, I... I couldn't believe how much I really liked, even though the sound quality was not so great, and it was like early recording. The one from Monteau is yeah. like um, when you love old, like silent films, you know, yeah. when they were just, you can tell that things are revolutionary at the time, but yes. not, we just, we're just, the, our, I, my, my problem is I compare it, right? You're comparing it to mm -hmm. nowadays, whereas if you think about how, incredibly advanced that was for that time. Yeah. And it does kind of bring you back to hearing like the cracking and so yeah. forth. But I don't totally. want to I don't want to give it away. Yeah. Let's and listen to some music. Yeah, let's do that because there are a million things I want to say right now, but we should just listen to some some of this music. So we're gonna listen to the very opening uh and uh, the opening of the Rite of Spring is an instrument called a bassoon in a register, in a really high register that's difficult to play. So that kind of was weird for people when they heard it in 1913. This recording, we'll hear first the Monteau from 1929, uh, just the opening bassoon, and then we'll hear the Bernstein play the bassoon. Well, he's not playing the bassoon, but and then we'll hear the Stravinsky recording of the bassoon. Is it weird that it makes me, like it evokes this sensation of like having some sort of cocktail out of a coupe in Paris, <laughs> downstairs, <laughs> no. somewhere really smoky? <laughs> like that's what I think of when I hear that. Love it. Okay, here's the Bernstein. already to me it just has so much more attitude which isn't a good or a bad thing but is that is that do you think that that's Bernstein or do you think yeah. that that is the recording quality well, like if we the, were back the, sitting in that yeah recording studio or yeah. on stage at the Monto recording yeah would it sound it could have a quick like quite a bit more akin to Bernstein it just there's all the it stuff could. in the way it could but some of the things that I notice are just even like right off the bat with the Bernstein and the way that bassoonist is playing it. It's not 
as um, it's not as it's more fluid in in mm-hmm. its tempo and in its expression than the manteau. And I'm not again neither here nor there. It yeah. just comparison, you know, cool. just the comparison. So the Stravinsky, this is what it sounded like when Stravinsky did it. Can you hear how much more reserved that is, it is than what we it's just more listened to? Like I feel like there's, it's more delicate. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and it was recorded after by two years. This one was. Don't be fooled by this saying 1962 because that's not right. Okay. Um. So. And you wonder if that is that anything other than Stravinsky's conducting, and obviously he's conducting a player to do that. Yeah, I mean, you know, when in an orchestra or in any in, in any kind of ensemble where there is a conductor and a soloist in, you know, a big ensemble. Uh, you know, it's going to be a, a little bit of both. It's going to be first of all what's on the page and what does the composer tell you in the music? What does the composer tell you in the music to do musically with your bassoon? So there's that. Then there's how does that performer interpret it and how is the conductor going to conduct it? Now, a lot of that stuff in the very open is very free, so there's not even any conducting for the first. Oh. That's like all bassoon. There's nothing comes in until that time. That's when everybody else comes in. So the conductor at the beginning of this piece is just going to go out, basically, and take a look at the bassoonist and be like, hey, homie, just whenever you're ready, let's do it. You know, and, and then homie bassoon starts playing and plays that first line all by him or herself. Oh, so the conductor then, isn't actually saying, okay, and go. Pro- well, I mean, they're definitely saying, okay, start your solo. But since nobody else, like if you listen to that, nobody else starts with the bassoon. So why would, why would the conductor need to be like counting off? You know what I mean? And it's yeah. such a free, I, it's so weird because it's a very freely written, like if you look at the score... You'll see how it's pretty freely, pretty freely written. Um, see, so so what we're looking at right now, uh, there are, there are symbols on the music that show that you should hold this note longer than what you at least usually at least twice its normal length. So that that symbol is called a fermata or a fermata. <laughs> we're, yeah, we're looking at the score right now, which are we yeah. able to post this? Yeah, we can post this for sure. So so you can see the fermatas over everybody, everybody. So there's really very little conducting. This is like, it's, and it says solo ad lib. So solo freely, oh, you know? Okay. Um, so a lot of that is going to be how that bassoonist interprets that particular measure. Sounds like my life. And <laughs> Solo. Ad-lib. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> and then uh, and then if the bassoonist does if the bassoonist does it to the conductor's liking, we're good and everybody can move on. But the conductor might say, I don't like the way you're playing that. Can you shorten those notes on the fermatas? Can you lean into that accent a little more? Can you do this? Can you you know the conductor might literally instruct yeah. the bassoonist how to play it. So it's both, right? So it's the bassoonist bringing their interpretation to the table and the conductor either agreeing with it or adjusting it how the conductor wants it adjusted. Cool. Okay, that's felt like a big tangent, but does that is that yeah, cool? Yeah, no, okay. it's super cool. And that's okay. just like I'm so happy that we're able to show that to people because I think, you know, nowadays, fortunately or unfortunately, a lot of folks that are listening to classical music may 
if if it's like a you know someone who just listens to it um you know easy listening kind of thing you go on your spotify and you type in what you're in the mood for if you're in the mood for a certain composer and just whatever comes up on top you just and it hopefully people will be interested in checking out different philharmonics or different conductors yeah, or recordings for sure. it, it's exciting how different it can be yes very much uh, I I want to keep going, but I want to taste. I want to talk more about this wine I as do well. Too. I do too. Pour I want you to have another taste and do a few more predictions first before. Well, I don't. I don't think I'm going to predict. I okay. Mean, I, okay. I, I, okay. I, what I do you like about it though? Just on taste, like tasting. I mean, it without, I, did you I, just look at it? No. <laughs> I mean, I looked to make sure there was still some in there. I didn't okay. want to be like, yeah. Um, no, I mean, I I think that the wine is there's definitely it's a, there's a plentiful amount of old oak usage. Okay, okay. And sometimes that bugs me. Like sometimes I'm not in the mood for that. Yeah. Um, if it were the right temperature, not only the wine itself, but outside or am I drinking it inside? Like if I'm going to have a wine like this, things kind of need to all be right for, for me personally to enjoy them. Yeah. Um, or, but this is something that's quite I don't. I don't want to say studious, but it's going to be a brain racker because it's not something that I. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it smells like. It could be something really classic too that I just don't drink that often anymore. You know, because mm-hmm. it, that old oak could be so it's very many things. acidy too. It is, and it's almost like it's got a refermentation and bottle. Like it's kind of verging on maybe being spritzy. Interesting. Like like, okay. So yeah, serve okay. it up. I think so it's, I think it's look? I think it's red, orange, or rosé. I mean, it's definitely not red. You can tell that, right? Okay, so it's orange or rosé, not white. It might be white. <laughs> I said I said that right. White, orange, or you rose. said red, orange, or rosé. Oh, sorry. And then you says definitely not red. So it's oh. white, orange, or rosé. It's definitely white, orange, or rosé. Okay. It's n- not red. Okay. That's my prediction. Okay. I mean. I think it's not rosé. Okay. <laughs> That's it. just my two cents. Pour it up. Watch it all fall out. A little Rihanna reference there. Okay, so it's white. Hey, hold on, let's, let's put more in this glass because this will be gone in two seconds. Well, we haven't even cheers yet, so. To scores and pours. Scores and pours. Nice one. Good one. So this is, it's a white wine. <gasps> it is spritzy. Look. Yeah. It's got like. You're so right. Little, like, there's a possibly a re-fermentation happening in the bottle, but it's not, it doesn't deter from its fruit. So what I'm trying to, what I want to point out is like, what makes a wine good, right? Not does Jill Mott like it or not, but yeah. like if the first thing I look for is like when I drink it is something out of balance like is it too bitter is it too acidic is it too tannic and those are all things that to this day a lot of wine writers and people that judge wine are looking for balance which is smart right you want yeah, you don't want to drink sure. like this totally out of whack wine right but at the same time how often are you going to maybe put food in your mouth or you have, you know, you just ate and you're going to settle in. You're going to have a glass of wine out by a bonfire or something. The chemistry of your mouth is going to, and all the food or fat or vinegar or things, acid that's are going to change the pH of the actual, the perception of the wine. So I like to think in my mind about how acidic is the wine, how tannic is the wine, how heavy is it, and, and you know, the fruit quality. And that's kind of 
that's it. And then from there, if it's unbalanced, maybe it's meant to be with food. If it's a right. really balanced wine, then you know you can go pay ten thousand dollars for DRC, What's really, that? a really expensive Burgundy, if mm-hmm. you want. But if all of the wine notes on planet Earth say that that's in perfect balance, why do you want to take your ten thousand dollars that you just spent and eat a steak with it, and then all of a sudden right. it's now the wine is out of balance, right? right. So. I first am kind of trying to gauge the harmony of the wine, and that's on the trajectory in my mind of like, what purpose does it serve for it to be a good wine? Mm-hmm. Okay. You know? So let's put it in our mouths now that we can see it. Wow, there are so many things this could be. I mean, it tastes so, it tastes like it tastes old school. It tastes like old school mm-hmm. something from Europe, maybe. Okay. okay. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if it was like. Burgundy somewhere, but that doesn't mean it needs to be. But it doesn't. It has acidity, but it doesn't have a ton of acidity. It's got like a, a medium amount. It you know makes my mouth salivate, but not too much. Oak. There's some nice oak, but it's like you know it's a low. Lot. low but, I think it's a lot, but low on the tannin scale, yeah. mm-hmm. and it's not like buttery. It. it this right. may have seen a little bit of a, a malolactic conversion, like that turning that really sharp malic acid into a, a lactic, more like round and and kind of coddling it could be there could be a little bit of that but it's for sure i don't think it's 100 percent malactic Mm -hmm. which sometimes with wines like this it is um so i think we should stop there we can talk about okay i have so many questions one question i do want to ask you which is not specific to this wine um how often would you say that you taste a wine and you personally aren't fond of it but it's like a good balanced wine how does that happen like never because you just love it so much that you're like, if it's good and balanced, you're happy. Oh, no. I, I love a lot of the wines that I actually personally drink are mm-hmm. like whacked out, tricked well, out sure. stuff. But like, um, I but would, the opposite of that. Yeah, I would say the amount of times that I taste a wine, and it's not to my personal liking, but I say, wow, this is a great value, like price point for what, it's, for what it is, or really balanced or whatever. I don't know, maybe... 40%, maybe half and half that I taste something and it's not, I mean, I taste a ton yeah. of wine that I don't like, sure, but sure. I say, wow, that would be, that's a great representation of this region yeah. or this is really well-made low sulfur wine or something yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah. Okay, cool. All so right. Back to tunes. Back, back to, to tunes. tunes. <laughs> All right. So, um, so now so, um well, I want to talk a little bit more about Monteau and because I referenced in the beginning, if that's all right, just please, please. why why his version I find so meaningful because Monteau was the assistant conductor of the orchestra that played uh, for the ballets that Stravinsky was writing and premiering at the time. You know, uh, Firebird and Petrushka. Monteau was around for those in the early 1900s and got asked to be the conductor for the premiere of the Rite of Spring in uh, 1913. He was asked, though, in the fall of 1912 to be the conductor. And he basically went to a meeting with the uh, uh, head of the uh, Russian ballet, Ballet Rus, which was the name of the ballet company that Stravinsky was writing this piece for. And that man's name was Sergei Diaghilev. And uh, so Monteau goes to a meeting with Stravinsky and Diaghilev, I think in Monte Carlo. <laughs> and, yes. and Stravinsky plays the entirety of the Rite of Spring on the piano for Monteau to hear it for the first time. And subsequently, uh, 
Monteau worked with Stravinsky tirelessly over the next, well, it probably would have been like eight or nine months on the score to help him orchestrate it, to help him get the parts right. Because Stravinsky wrote it on piano. Then he decided what instruments he wanted to be where. I mean, I'm sure he had some of that figured out in the first place. But uh, once you make that transfer, a lot, that happens by hand in the in 19. 19- 13, nobody's mm-hmm. doing it by computer. There's no computer to say, are you sure you want that to be an A natural? Because it doesn't fit there. You know, so Monteau was in- incredibly valuable to the, uh, to the process of that piece transforming from piano to orchestra. And uh, Monteau also rehearsed with the orchestra 17 times before the premiere. So uh, Monteau had Stravinsky right there barking in his ear saying, this tempo, that tempo, too slow, too fast. You play louder bassoon. You be quieter, uh, piccolo, clarinet. I need more bass clarinet. I need less bass trumpet. I need, you know what I mean? Like just, I mean, that's... And 17, to me, I mean, clarify, because to me, 17 seemed like, wow, these people need to be practicing a lot more than that to sound good together. I thought that was... (laughs) like a, a small amount of times. And That's you so said, many times. So many times. That's, so that's many crazy. Times. Yeah, 17 rehearsals with the full orchestra, if that's indeed what that uh, meant when I read it. That's insane. I mean, think because they're getting paid. Like, those musicians got paid back then, too. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, that's that's a lot. Like, nowadays, you know, there would never be 17. I don't care how new your piece is. First of all, I mean, nowadays, players are a lot better right? There's billions more people on the planet than there were in 1913. Yeah. So, and they have more access to education, and I they imagine, can hear the piece Instagram ahead of time. They don't the, have yeah. to learn it on their own. They, you know, so there's yeah. a lot of reasons that, you know, it does make it more likely to have fewer rehearsals now, but still 17 rehearsals is a lot. And uh, that Monto recording is just valuable for insight for style and for tempo. And uh, most those two, just style and tempo, you know? So, how fast is shit going to go, and how are you going to play it? So now which portion are you going to listen to? The next part we're going to listen to, okay, Stravinsky, what's cool about The Rite of Spring is that he gave it French titles first, and when he gave it the French title of The Rite of Spring, uh, <laughs> which I'm not going to say, uh, he... Um, didn't have a Russian title yet. So he had, like, there's all these different translations of all the movements and stuff. Uh, this movement sometimes tra- – it's the second second movement, and it's it sometimes translates as, like, dance of the young girls or dance of the youth or young virgins or, you know, whatever. Um, and this is – everything about this piece is so iconic, but – um, this rhythm here of I always think of it as like chomping strings uh, is is pretty great, and so we're gonna hear uh, just kind of how how some of this goes, and it gets really technical. There's a lot of really oh, it's so it's a very difficult piece to play. So here we go, dance of the young girls. Thank mm-hmm. you. 
check the Bernstein part of that. Then. Yeah, it's much more like it's much more lavish and slower. indulgent. It's a little slower. Yep. Yep. And just listen to the splatty brass. You hear the horns in yeah. there? The brass in the Bernstein is just so alive and vibrant and brassy, you know. You know, the Manteau was a little quicker mm -hmm. than what Bernstein did. He yeah. sat on it a little more, you know. So there's that, and then the Stravinsky. It's just a little, it's just a little faster. faster. Yeah. And more chiseled. Yep. You know. Yeah. Yeah. I think the tempo allows for that. The tempo kind of forces the players to shorten mm -hmm. those notes a little. Oh, that's where the trumpets miss their notes, yeah. That's, okay. yeah, that's so like, cool. I love listening like to those like notes that are too. somewhere. Because <laughs> if we were to listen to, even if time permitted and people wanted to listen to a four-hour podcast, yeah. and we listened to the whole first portion yeah. and the whole first, I mean, people wouldn't, I don't think yeah. that's as it's noticeable as when you just like yeah. you gotta, 30 you gotta, seconds. That's so great. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. What makes me wonder is like, so if I'm listening to three of those, like a lot of people ask me, well, what's a better wine? What's a what's the best wine? What's mm. your favorite wine? Okay, so I'm sure if we were listening to these three with people that just casually listen to classical, they're gonna go, well, which one's the best one? Right, and that's <laughs> yeah. Is is it is that subjective? Here, it, of in course, this case? it is. Okay. I still I think even with the wisdom that Monto had uh, to make the tempo decisions, I I, I mean, it's still. It's still totally subjective. Okay, for sure. Okay, and that's like with with wine. It is too. You know, the I'll get to my end argument at the end. <laughs> but um, so when I'm tasting this wine, it also is subjective. Even in the fact that okay, right now I, th I th we're going to unveil shortly so that okay. we can talk about is it typical or not? Because okay. usually, what makes me think this is maybe not white Burgundy is it's got it. The more I taste it, the more it's got the acid is really a bit higher than the first couple times I tasted it, which that's common. Usually takes your palate, you know, a couple tastes of something if you're if you're going to get to know it to acclimate to what it's about, yeah. as opposed to like speed tasting through a hundred wines at a wine fair or something. Mm -hmm. um, but I, you know, I think that normally white, if this were a white Burgundy of of some sort it usually they don't have refermentation problems i mean there okay. there are people that don't sulfur but by and large they come and they're pretty intact and so if this is a wine that has a refermentation awesome issue cuz it doesn't bother me <laughs> then i'm going okay well now where is it from cuz it's probably not from burgundy Okay. It could still be from Burgundy. Yes, I'm just yes. saying that. Um, <laughs> just I don't know, keep this, covering your bases. Well, <laughs> I, you know, I don't know. It's it's the oak is kind of it, the oak does sort of mask a lot of its fruit, so you can't really tell. You know, there and there are certain other grape oh. varietals that do that, like uh, Verdello, 
is very easily masked by oak, but Verdello also has a green tinge to it and is bitter. So it's kind of easy, and it's got screaming amounts of acid to last all the live long day. So, you know, that that's something that, you know, I'm, I'm just trying to think of where in the world, if this is typical, yeah, because it may not be typical. I, right. I told Gretchen, you know, I just want it to be, in your mind, a good wine that's X amount of money. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, can I say that this is a good value? I don't know. If I paid $40 for this, yeah, I would be okay with it. I wouldn't buy it for $40 again. Okay. For $20, it's a steal. For $50, mm, I'm not so sure. Okay. That's how I feel about price situation. Okay. Uh, so let's let's unveil. Are we? Okay, yeah, I I'm think we should I think we should. I'm excited. Wanna do the honors? Oh, okay. So we're not we're not too far away. Um, okay. Which is great. And the reason okay, so this is really a really cool wine to taste because um, when I thought the reason that it didn't seem like Chardonnay to me was because it had too much acid. Yes. This is Chenin Blanc, which is known for its like astounding amount of acidity. Okay. Um, it also is from it is from France. Okay. It is it does have some old oak to it, um, but instead of being uh, in Burgundy, we're just a uh, hop, skip, and a jump across the country in the Loire Valley. Nice. This is uh, from Touraine, and it's from. Um, a, the producer Puzelat Bonhomme, his Le Ormeau du Du Quoi, uh, which is 100% Shannon, done with, uh, I think there is a little sulfur usage, and if so, not much, um, but enough that, you know, hey, after what vintage are we? This is 2013. Okay, so. I think. Cool. Yep. So um, the fact that after all this time, maybe there's a little hint of spritz, acid yeah. still really lively. Um, it's a fun wine. I like it. Cheers. I have no idea how much it is. We should probably find Cheers. that out, but yeah. So is this wine typical? That's the question. Okay. And I would say if, if I were writing in my notes, the acid, it's typical of Shannon. Shannon's fruit profile oxidizes with time meaning it loses its fruit character and kind of gets honeyed a little bit and get loses that like fresh fruit and goes to like bruised fruit and with very quickly. Okay. Check. Oak, the oak factor here is something that masks, I think, personally where it's from. Is the wine delicious? Sure, is it well made? Yes, but if if someone were giving if I need to give marks to this for being atypical Touraine Blanc, I would be like Eye of the beholder, but no, okay. I wouldn't. If someone were going to go for their sommelier exam, yeah. I wouldn't give this to them for yeah. a Touraine Blanc. Yeah. So, what do you think of this wine? Because I'm doing all the talking, and what what do you think? Well, I have noticed because I've tasted more wine in the last six months than I've tasted in my entire goddamn life. <laughs> That's for sure. Uh, and, you know, when you do that in those quantities that quickly, you can learn pretty quick what you like and what you don't like if you didn't already have a good idea. Like, I I knew already that I didn't like wines that dried out my gums. But some of the things that I've learned <laughs> over time is um, I, I'm not a huge 
oaky ochre, ochreson fan. Okay. Like this wine doesn't do that, but I, I find it a little oaky to my liking. Otherwise, I quite enjoy it because I dig the acid. Well, you know, we're going to cheers to that because when friends say, I like the acid, I'm happy because a lot of people say, well, I don't, I don't want a really acidic wine, but acid's what really distinguishes a lot of qualities of wine from mm-hmm. water is their acid level because... Sure. So, okay, so music, sorry. Not at all. Um, there's one... Part and so the Rite of Spring overall is about a 30 minute piece. I only, you know, tasked Jill with listening to the first 10 minutes of each, which happens to be, generally speaking, the entirety of part one in the Rite of Spring. So it works out pretty well. Give or take a minute or two, you know, 10 to 12 minutes, part one. There's one part in part one that to me really just like says it all about the difference between the way Bernstein approached conducting this piece and the way Monteau and then later Stravinsky uh, approached. And that has to do with some really cool technique that trombones can do that nobody else can do. Uh, It's the only cool thing that trombones can do. And it's a portamento. I guess strings can do it too. But um, like if you take your finger up and down a piano and just go... That's like a glissando, okay? Because you're hearing each individual note go up and down as your finger is touching each note. Or if you do that on a guitar string, just like smack a string and then move your finger up and down it. Something with individual notes speaking out as you glissando up or down or whatever. Uh, On a trombone, you don't hear individual notes. You just hear a smear sound, right? Right? Yep. Portamento. Uh, portamento. And they get to do that in the Rite of Spring. And they get to do it in my personal favorite movement, which is spring round dances or round dances or spring rounds or however it translates. Uh, And what I find most fascinating about the Manto and the Stravinsky is how they don't obnoxiously, they don't have the trombones do that. They don't like say, hey, trombones, can you stand up and play that as loud as possible? Yeah. (laughs) But it seems like that's what Bernstein has them do. And it's wonderful. So when you hear these three recordings back to back, well, and maybe what we should do, to be fair, is listen to the Bernstein first. right now. Here comes another one. Now. Here's another. So good. Isn't that amazing? Yes. So then if we go back and listen to how Stravinsky does it, uh, and it's easier to be fair because the Monto recording quality is so poor, it's easy to just listen to that section, easier to just hear the Stravinsky version because Stravinsky clearly had no intention of it ever sounding like that. Yeah.
here it comes now. Now. And it's almost more like two separate notes. Almost. Now. It's like. It's like. Right. Did it. It's not like. B. Yeah. And I feel like in not only yeah. the Bernstein, but the Monteau, they were like. Boo. Yep. They're they just like, boo. Yeah, they're just doing and, it slow. And this er. was like, it. like it's almost like it it's does bend. It's almost like they are tonguing a little in there, which is how a trombone player or anybody who would interrupt a slur in a wind instrument. But it's like, it's just so pronounced how Bernstein, let's listen to Bernstein just one more time, just for, <laughs> just for context, because it's so over the top. Ridiculous. And I love it. I love that it's over the top like that. <laughs> slower, slower. He just like the slows bend. down. It's like I think it's the whole thing is just yeah. Now, I have two <laughs> words: Bernstein, drama. <laughs> now, yes, grandiose, dramatic. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's very fun to hear those differences. To me, very, very fun in a different way than like I appreciate it when I'm listening to differences in how like a Beethoven symphony is conducted. For some reason, I don't get as big of a kick out of that than I do hearing this. And I'm not sure why. I'd have to probably think about that for a while. But uh, I just, maybe it's, maybe I'm more fascinated by Bernstein's choices because we knew exactly what Stravinsky wanted. Yeah. Like, exactly what he wanted, yep. you know? So I, I I don't know. I just think it's, it's really fun. And, um, you know, there are dozens upon dozens upon dozens of recordings uh, of this. You know, the the newest recording we listened to was from 1960, which was 60 years ago. And nowadays, when you hear an orchestra play the Rite of Spring, a professional orchestra, it's freaking flawless. Like, this piece is so technically difficult to play, and you can hear that in these yeah. recordings from 60-plus years ago. So, I mean, the Monteau, again, 1929. So, you know, the the bar has been raised significantly, and it's pretty astounding to listen to some of the technical passages that these orchestras do just flawlessly because it's it's amazing but I wonder fun piece. I wonder if there's a if there's a way to maybe um, compare these type of you know the recordings that are now they can be so perfect mm -hmm. you know whether it's a technical piece like this or others just because of what you were saying before musicians access to actually hearing it a thousand times before they yeah. perform it. Um, you know, education, et cetera, you know, how precise instruments are nowadays. When I think of wine, I wonder if music, classical music is now where wine was in the 70s and 80s. What do you mean? Where it was like, even 90s, where it was like so easy to say, I want to make a wine taste like this. Mm -hmm. And so you didn't, you blueprinted yeah. into what you wanted with stainless steel with packeted yeast with whatever yeah. and that's a whole other topic but it's just yeah. something that something that interested yeah. me so 
Um, when I think of when I think of this wine, um, I, you know, I I wonder. I think in the end, what makes a good wine is all honestly, do you like it? Because I yeah. could be the sommelier that recommends a wine to you that you hate or that right. is, you know, it's never going to be over budget because that's not how I roll. But if you, um, wine is just very subjective for a lot of folks, depending on just what they want to get out of it. You know, some people mm-hmm. want to have a glass of wine in a coffee cup like we just did and Bob's your uncle and no thing, you know? Yeah. And so to talk about intricacies or does it go well with food or does it go well with friends or is it worth $50, that conversation doesn't matter. Right. And so for them, it's a good wine. And I think um, when I'm tasting a wine personally, because maybe someone would wonder, I a wine needs to be – I like when it speaks of place. I like what – I don't need to necessarily taste it and say I can yeah. – I can – ascertain where this is from right away. Yeah. But I like once I know the story, can I get there? And sometimes you can't. Like I can I know this producer very well. I've tasted this wine one or two other times this vintage and I'm like still doesn't taste to me like Touraine Blanc. Tastes like <laughs> I've had versions of some Chenin that's oaked from this area from various producers that are they well-made wines? They are. Would they go great with food? Like this function, thinking of a function of a wine, yeah. this wine is a food wine. What do would I, you eat with it? Do I want a cocktail with this wine? I don't want to sit it at a bonfire and drink this, but do I want it with roasted chicken in the winter? Because it's got oak and the tannin in your, your the tannin in the oak with the wine will go well with your, your proteins and kind of your need to like chew on meat for a while. Yeah. Um, do I want this with like summer corn on the cob with, you know, a some sort of like fresh fish salad with, I don't know, asparagus, et cetera. Sure, but I want something because to just go glass after glass. Yeah, not cutting it for you. No tiger. I don't know. It was just fun to watch you work that out because I've watched you work shit out way faster than that one. That's for sure. So that was fun. Oak is confusing. And what I liked about it was the acid sort of um, in my mind. Shannon crossed my mind, but then the oak just... Threw it off, yeah. Made it be like, well, why would anybody do that to Shannon? <laughs> you know <what> I mean? like, <laughs> not to put you down, Puzzlelap on, like you're doing great things, keep doing what you're doing. Like yeah. nine-tenths of the wines I would buy like blindly without yeah. ever tasting them. But, um, you know, the the lift is there and the acid is there and the tension is there, but the oak just made me want to like fumble around in other places that play with oak. And so for that, typicity, it would yeah. not win points, but... Okay. With that, I say I need to put wine in your glass, and we need yep. to uh, yep. rein this one in, ER. Yep, sounds good. Discours and pours. Discours and pours. Thank you for listening to episode five of Scores and Pours with Jill Mott and Emily Rees. You can find links and information about this episode at patreon.com slash scoresandpours. We're on Instagram at scoresandpours, all one word. Edited by Emily Reese and Jill Mott. Our producer is Sam Keenan. And I'm Paul Beach. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media Incorporated. 